0: Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh and I'm here with Professor Michael Hertz. Michael, how are you doing?
1: I'm very well, thanks. How are you?
0: I'm very good. And uh, thank you for hosting me in your office. We're at the Cordillera Law School, where you're a professor of environmental and constitutional law, and environmental constitutional law. There's probably three separate things.
1: <laughs> yeah, with the third of them being the smallest. The
0: the uh, Yeah, the, everyone is, I, is, if everyone's as geeky as me, they're picturing the circles overlapping. A Venn diagram, yeah. right, yeah. And I'm going to say a few words about what brings me here. And some regular listeners probably know this: that uh, you know, unplugging from the grid has led to a lot more reading. So I read two biographies of Abraham Lincoln, and um, one morning after reading them and learning about the passage of the 13th Amendment, and which I think uh, ending slavery in the United States, or I'm sorry, making slavery illegal in the United States, and he 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 didn't really the, I just kind of thought the amendment was on his mind for a long, long time, but it was recent and it, uh, not long before it passed. And today, I can't imagine we could find many people who would say, let's repeal the 13th Amendment. I think it has, to say the least, bipartisan support. I can't imagine anyone getting elected saying, let's repeal the 13th Amendment. But at the time, it was hugely bipartisan, it, not bipartisan, um, uh, polar opposites. Uh, to the, uh, Civil war was fought over it hundreds of thousands of people dying. And we think it was obvious back then. And I think I see a future where we look back at the amount we pollute and could imagine us saying, "How future us saying, how could we take so long to reach agreement on this? And somehow that led to me one morning waking up and thinking a constitutional amendment banning pollution. And even in the moment, I thought, that's crazy. Don't waste your brain power on that, Josh. Move on to other things because how do you enforce it and how do you define pollution and prohibition didn't work. But it kept sticking with me. And of course, it's not going to pass in the next several years or decades, maybe, uh, if ever. But it kept sticking with me and how actually it'd be easy to enforce because we know where the fossil fuels are and it costs hundreds of millions of dollars and years to set up a deep water horizon to get there. And... The definitions I started playing with and things started making sense, but I don't know constitutional law and I don't know how to pass crazy things. So past guest, Seth Sheldon, won, or it was in a group that won a Nobel prize for making nuclear weapons illegal. And before I met him, I thought, well, that's crazy. We need a balance of power and things like that. And then he shared it with me and it made, made sense in a way that I never thought of before. And I said, Seth, you're a lawyer do you know about constitutional law? He said, Michael Harris is the person to talk to.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then you're a couple blocks away from me. And uh, so we met once before uh, and you put me in touch with Jimmy, uh, which led to me participating in this workshop or not, uh, sorry, attending a, a Pace University uh, constitutional law or uh, anyway, this Pace University event, uh, which led me to learn about Maya Van Rossum and a lot of things. And so I come to you Partly to hear is his crazy talk, partly to hear what's the lay of the land. I feel like it's, from my perspective, a bit mercenary because I feel like I'm going to enter some territory. And you know that territory better than I do. And I think it would be interesting to listeners.
1: It's a nice view of the idea of a mercenary activity being not that you're getting money from it, but knowledge. Mm -hmm. But that's a happy definition of mercenary.
0: Yeah, when I think of mercenary, I guess somehow I always think of, of George Washington, Christmas Eve. Across uh, the Delaware, hmm. I think it was German mercenaries on the other side. Hmm. I think that's where I learned the word mercenary. Yeah, so maybe I'm like George Washington. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe before getting into uh, the specifics of of an amendment on pollution or or right to free uh, to to clean air, clean environment, are there a lot of constitutional lawyers? Are there a lot of professors? Are there a lot of um, environmental lawyers? Are you rare? Are there a lot of you? I bet there's more of you all the time.
1: I don't know if there are more all the time. There, there are, um, you know, the thing about environmental law in the United States is that it, it sort of tracks the growth but also stasis of the environmental movement. And so until 1970, there were no environmental lawyers in the United States mm-hmm. um, there was no, because there was no environmental law. That's a slight exaggeration, but the, um, you know, the, the common law of nuisance is a kind of environmental law, right? If you are, have a smokestack or a noisy factory or are creating a lot of dust next to me and it interferes with my enjoyment of my property, the, the common law protects me against that through, through the cause of action for nuisance. So you can conceive of that as environmental law, because there were nuisance actions brought against smokestacks. But that's all common law, and those were few and far between. And in the 1960s, when the ecology movement became a sort of more salient political uh, force, and then the 1969 Santa Barbara oil blowout, and 1970 was the first Earth Day. And as, as all of this sort of became rolling together as a national social slash political movement, it led to a whole bunch of legislation. And so the first of which was the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, which is the law that requires environmental impact statements for certain uh, agency actions. That was passed in 1969, signed into law by then-President Richard Nixon, a Republican, on the first day of January 1970, which is a politically salient day, right? The first day of the new decade. What law do you sign in to announce to the world, you know, this kind of defines the decade in some way? It was this first major federal uh, environmental law. Richard Nixon creates the EPA in 1970. The Clean Air Act passes in 1970, overwhelming majorities, completely bipartisan, everybody trying to prove that they're a better environmentalist than the other guy. And then followed by, you know, 1972, the Clean Water Act, 1974, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, the Endangered Species Act in 1973, uh, the Toxic Substances and Control Act in 1976, I guess amendments to the Clean Air Act in 1977. It was just an extraordinary flurry of activity, never before seen and not seen since, leading up to 1980, which is Superfund. And there it stops, right? So there was this 10-year period of explosive statutory growth and environmental law writing, which created a whole bunch of new environmental lawyers, because now suddenly there's all this law out there and no one knows what to make of it. Um, The And national environmental groups all spring up at around this time, late 60s and in the 70s. All the major groups, I mean, the Sierra Club goes back more deeply in history, but the other ones are more or less all date from around then. Um, And all the private law firms start getting environmental lawyers because they have to comply with all these environmental laws. And the environmental agencies, notably EPA, but not only EPA and the federal government, suddenly spring up and every state now has active environmental laws. So there was this huge growth period in the 70s and 80s as all that was digested. Um, And then a period of kind of a plateau, right? So a lot of, you know, that's that's when modern environmental law was born. It's been sort of... um, Going along steadily since, and then of course in the last ten years or so, more and more focus on climate and an increase. In, you know, still we're starting to see climate legislation, less of it, right, and nothing significant at the federal level, and and so on. But uh, so there are a bunch of environmental lawyers out there. Um, environmental constitutional law is a small corner of it. Right? When most people think of environmental law, they really are thinking of that body of federal statutes that I just described and then the endless regulations adopted pursuant thereto.
0: So being in your office and having been here last time, I can see right behind you there's this book called Environmental Law Statutes, which you pulled out last time and started showing me the, the specifics of it. It's a big book.
1: It is a big book. And I didn't and, know what statutes if, were. And if we got environmental law regulations, it would be a lot bigger.
0: And now, since you're talking about the history, I want to go back a bit because my picture of why didn't we have environmental law? We didn't have poison before. I mean, we had – there's poison like strychnine and stuff like that. But it was – I feel like like plastic is maybe 1907, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Cars, something like 1900, 1910. Uh, I guess the Model T was somewhere around 1910 and that started growing that. Airplanes, 1903, the Wright brothers. Plastic – and then I think World War Two must have really jammed things up, of really increasing, the oh, and then and then yeah. So I think I would think the war would really start using, polluting things because whatever it takes.
1: Yeah, yeah sure, to some extent, but you know, if you think about the Industrial Revolution, there were local pollution problems that were horrific, mm-hmm. right, in England and here in the nineteenth century if you think about the London killer fogs, Mm -hmm. you know, that was pollution. That was not some natural event. Um, It was more localized because, you know, there were fewer people, there was less activity, you know, uh, but uncontrolled uh, industrial activity created really significant local pollution problems. And part of the to the extent there was a legal response, it was mainly in, as I mentioned before, nuisance right? that one, which is this notion that a landowner has a right to enjoy their own property, and if their neighbor is doing something that interferes with them, that 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 uh, they can shut down the neighbor. And historically, that was the relief—you shut it down. It wasn't damages. And nuisance is still absolutely with us. The most the most famous recent nuisance stuff, and there's a new book about this was uh, litigation in North Carolina against huge hog farms, right? Concentrated animal feeding operations and the, the odors that, that emanated from them. And, and so, so nuisance is real. Environmental problems were real. They were perceived, I think, you know, it's all before your time and my time, but I think perceived as, A, more local and less systemic, be the price of progress, and C not as bad as now we realize they are. And so the the 1960s were the really big shift in the understanding of these problems. But but the problems were older than that. It took a, it took a while for people to say, Yikes, this is actually intolerable and we should be doing something. You know, there's this famous image it's always trotted out in any discussion of the background of the Clean Water Act, of the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland burning, mm-hmm. right? So, how can there be a river burning? Something is wrong right, if, if our rivers are on fire. So, that was in the famous incident, it was 1969, but there's actually no photograph of that because it wasn't that striking because it had happened at other times. There's a photograph of the Cuyahoga River burning, which is the one you, if you Google Cuyahoga River burning, you see this photograph, which was from another incident, like in the 50s, when the Cuyahoga River caught on fire. Um, The 1969 one, the 1950s one produced nothing. The 1969 one was, you know, it Fifties one and previous ones fell on deaf ears. There was sort of a more fertile, more receptive audience to look at what at a burning river in nineteen sixty nine and say, Yikes, this is just not acceptable. And like something I said, changed. Something changed in, in the culture. Something you know, I think it it was it was a period of, of relative prosperity. So people felt actually We have the resources. We don't have to put up with this. We have the resources to do something about it. But in the early years of the environmental movement, and you see this very much actually in the text of the Clean Air Act, which is 1970, there was a kind of rights-based thinking in some sense that you can't put a price on clean air. You can't put a price on human health. And we're going to do whatever we have to do I don't care how much it costs, we are going to keep, you know, protect public health from air pollution. And we've been backing away from that ever since, right? Because it turns out to be really expensive. And, you know, every presidential election is about regulations, right? Um and and the whole fight about regulations and getting government off the back of the American public and job-killing regulations that happens in presidential elections. More than anything else, that's about environmental regulations. Not only, there are a lot of regulations out there, but actually environmental regulations are the most expensive regulations we have. Um, They're worth it, okay? They're worth it. If you do a cost-benefit analysis, they more than pay for themselves, but they're very expensive. Right. And and so, therefore, politically salient.
0: Now, uh, going back to what you're saying at the beginning of that, of, about um, pollution, and I'm picturing Manchester and, and London fogs, that I think it was, I mean, there had been wildfires since before humans existed because lightning can strike a forest. Sure. So, if wood, bur- I mean, if, if we lit a fire in this room, forget about the heat, the, the smoke inhalation would kill us. But in an open space, I think people could reasonably feel what engineers now say, the solution to pollution is dilution. And if you burn wood, it just moves stuff around the biosphere. Eventually, that smoke becomes a new plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, And I think that the – but some stuff doesn't go away. I mean, plastic doesn't go away. For example, DDT can last a long time, PFAS. But even going back to the 60s, I guess DDT was a big one with Silent Spring. Right. and and I feel like the my picture is that the Earth is so big compared to humans at that time that they really could believe that the the pollution coming from oil and coal and gas burning was just like the smoke from wood that, yeah, concentrated enough, it's bad, but it's fine. And plastic doesn't break down, but the Pacific is really big. And I think people could think it really wasn't a problem. It
1: well, Not like, only could they think it, they'd be right. That is to say, natural systems do have some assimilative capacity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if nothing else, you know, all creatures, a certain amount of, you know, uh, human and animal waste products, Mm -hmm. as we say. Poop. (laughs) That's, that's, to use a word, yeah. Uh Um,
0: Exhalation, I guess also. It's
1: not a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Because it, it you know it's a sort of dose makes the poison idea, and um up to a certain level it's absorbed within the system used by the system you know and and one needn't worry I remember years and there was used to be this comic strip called b c which yeah, you remember b c yeah and there was a guy and and the first in the first uh panel, someone is finishing, you know, eating like meat on a bone and just throws the bone on the ground and someone else comes up to it and says, what are you doing? Just littering like that, throwing it on the bound, bone. Do you realize what it, things would look like if everybody did that? Uh-huh. And the other guy says, well, yeah, there'd be nine bones, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and that's sort of the idea, right? And, but the, the, you know you said engineers say dilution is the solution to pollution. you know I think of environmentalists as always saying the opposite that dilution isn't the solution to there's pollution, no way right yeah. um, but of course and, and and the truth is sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't right i mean when when you when you use a product and it says use in a well ventilated area, right because if you have all your windows closed when you're painting with this or using this whatever it is, you know, that's, you're relying on, on dilution and it, and it's fine. But there are, and, and to the extent the issue is local concentrations of something, um, you can solve that problem by diluting. That's not a scalable solution mm-hmm. because as you get more and more activity, you're moving things around, but you're creating a problem, you know, that somewhere there's going to be a concentration. And then, of course, there are environmental problems that aren't about concentrations, that are about total loadings,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and with with carbon being the classic one, right? It doesn't matter where the ton of carbon is emitted. What matters is how much total carbon is in the atmosphere. Um, acid rain was a sort of a similar kind of problem, right? We weren't really, it wasn't about how, you know, what the concentration of SO2 or sulfates was. It was just sort of about how much you were putting up in the air. And so one of the things that made acid rain exactly the problem it was was that you had coal-burning power plants in the Midwest that had very tall stacks. And they had very tall stacks because they wanted to dilute the sulfur dioxide they were emitting, so that there wouldn't be unhealthy concentrations of it anywhere. But the result was they were still emitting a huge amount, and it was landing in Adirondack Lakes. Um, and so, yeah, they solved, they solved the, you know, asthmatics weren't breathing too much SO2 near these plants because of the unbelievably high, plant, high high stacks that did dilute the emissions. But you had a really significant environmental problem nonetheless
0: so let's go back to your background so you, yeah. you're, when did you when did you decide to go for the money and go go into environmental law
1: <laughs> so i i like many people i went to gra- I went to law school out of a failure of imagination, oh. um, not knowing what I wanted to do and telling myself, well, you can do anything with a law degree. And my girlfriend was going to law school. And so, you know, I went to law school. And then I graduated from law school not knowing what kind of lawyer I wanted to be. I spent three years clerking for federal judges and then moved to New York City.
0: What time is this, by the way?
1: So I graduated from law school in 1982.
0: Okay, so it's just after the the legislation. Exactly, Right.
1: So, for example, I did not take an environmental law class in law school. Um, there, the, it was occasionally offered called pollution law, um, but not offered during my years at this law school because it was such a, you know, and many law schools at that time didn't have environmental law classes. Um, the, uh, you don't see any environmental law class in American law school until the mid 70s. And even at that point, they're fairly few and far between. Um, by the mid 80s, every law school has environmental law as so a necessary part of the curriculum, mm-hmm. um, just sort of 10 years behind the explosion of the law itself. Uh, and I ended up going to work in New York for the Environmental Defense Fund, EDF. Um, you oh, men- well,
0: um, Sorry, no, we had yeah. Fred Krupp on the podcast. So. Oh, you did?
1: Yeah. Okay, right. So Fred, Fred came to EDF maybe a year or two before I did. He was the you know, young wunderkind new executive director of this organization, Uh, When I joined. Yeah. Um, And, you know, you mentioned Rachel Carson and DDT, you know, EDF's big first project had been pursuing a ban of DDT, which it did successfully. Um,
0: Well, DDT. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, I got it confused because I keep thinking I kept thinking for a long time that asbestos was banned and it's not in this country.
1: Asbestos is not banned in this country. It's a famous story of environmental law because OSHA did ban it at one point. Um, And and the ban, uh, after a sort of 10-year rulemaking process, OSHA finally released an asbestos ban. And the court set it aside. And uh, it's, anyways, so there was briefly, anyway, so I'm I'm at EDF. Um, and I spent three years at EDF working on, uh, wetlands protection, a lot of stuff about garbage and recycling and opposing incinerators, um, some acid rain work, um, um, and, uh, and other odds and ends. And, and after three years, I sort of thought, well, okay, is this, you know, what I'm doing forever, Are first child was about to be born. And I'd always been drawn to academics. And had I not gone to law school, I would have gone to graduate school in something, probably English literature. And mm-hmm. um, and so I went on the teaching market and, and uh, happily ended up here at Cardozo. And I have been at Cardozo ever since, so 34 years. And so I teach environmental law. I'm the environmental law guy here. Um, I teach constitutional law and and have in the past run our Center for Constitutional Democracy, the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy here. But I also teach administrative law, stuff about agencies, which naturally is a big part of what environmental law is, a kind of applied administrative law. Um, I teach land use regulation, which overlaps with environmental law in some ways and and some other odds and ends
0: can you describe the i mean describe the numbers growing in the 80s for example how about the the culture of environmental lawyers your students over the years and i'm sure you've seen them go on to practice
1: yeah so um, so it's varied the 80s were a period of where where environmental law was a huge growth area and I, my environmental law classes were larger, were better subscribed in the 1980s than they have been at any time since. Um, and I think in large measure, because the students rightly perceived there were a lot of new jobs in environmental law. And uh, so this was a promising field to to be pursuing. But also the 80s, you know, the 70s, obviously, because there was, you know, there was, there was all this social... Uh, it was a serious kind of social movement and political movement, but that flowed into the 80s. And, um, you know, in 1990, back when Time Magazine was still an important um, <laughs> feature of the political and intellectual landscape in this country, instead of having a man of the year, which it still was at that point, not person of the year, um, they made Earth planet of the year. right and and that was sort of a remarkable thing. It, it, it's hard to, maybe now one could imagine it again, but I think that, you know, once we're into the 90s and the aughts, you know, environmental, environmentalism was not as robust um, as an overall social movement. It was going totally strong where it was strong. And so organizations like EDF or NRDC or the other big environmental organizations were way bigger by ten thousand, by two thousand, than they had been, um, you know, in nineteen ninety or nineteen eighty-five. When I went to EDF in nineteen eighty-five, it was something like—I'm going to get the exact numbers wrong—but something like a two and a half million dollar a year organization and now it's a 100 million dollar a year organization With the satellite you know it's and and the same is true of NRDC and you know and these things which were kind of scrappy catch as catch can jury rigged organizations have become very sophisticated very well funded um uh, operations that that you know they don't really bear much um there there are kind of more grassroots environmental groups out there a lot of them doing environmental justice work that kind of look a lot more like the EDFs and the NRDCs did in the 1970s mm-hmm. so so that's a sign that environmentalism has has real staying power and and they're able to raise a lot of money and do a lot of good things But if you're talking about it as a kind of national movement, right, what what did voters care about? What do you see in Gallup polling? What's the issue that's of greatest concern to you? Mm -hmm. Um, In the 1970s, the environment would show up on those, right? I think for the last generation, it just hasn't, right? It's way down the list. Now, with climate change, it's starting to creep up a little bit. But the number of voters who say the environment is my top issue are tiny. The number of voters who say it's my top five is remarkably small. Remarkably small. Oh, no
0: wonder I'm. Uh, no wonder my podcast is so high ranked among the. <laughs> there's just not that many of them out there. The,
1: um, there are a lot. Everyone, it's it's a little more than that. Very few people are anti-environment, right? All, lots of people like to think of themselves as environmentalists. I like the environment, right? There is this tiny subculture of like people in Hummers who retrofit them so that they blow more black smoke than oh, they really coal, yeah, Yeah, right. You know, and the, you know, this business of going by a Prius and shooting it with black smoke <laughs> and so on, right? That, that segment of the population exists, but that's, that's awfully tiny. Um, but most people in there as voters and in their day-to-day lives are not putting the environment first.
0: Yes, it seems there's a lot of that going around, not putting it first. <laughs> the, yeah. um, I'm curious about, we've been talking mostly U.S. here. Yeah. How, how about europe central america asia
1: so I don't really know enough to say something you know with any confidence about about uh about other parts of the world um you know one sense is that you know first of all you gotta develop you gotta distinguish the developed from the undeveloped or developing world right um and uh you know, one feels like the European Union is is ahead of this country on a lot of environmental issues, um, but I, you're really sort of, I, I, I don't want to waste your listeners' time with my guesses about <laughs> environmental law and uh, attitudes in other parts of the world.
0: So back here in the States, I mean, talking about the interest of voters and, and people decreasing, yet a lot of this pollution accumulates, which means it's growing. I think of places like we have a place in this country called Cancer Alley, and we have places that we call sacrifice zones, which seems nuisances to say the least. And I would think that, is it just that, I mean, I, the way often people write about it is like they become that way because of people that are, are powerless and they don't have the resources to fight back. And so tough luck for them.
1: Is that the case? (laughs) Oh, there's a, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, You know, and, and, and it is an indictment of the adequacy of our, our environmental laws. Um, You know, we have, there are two sort of legal responses to, um, to, you know, the Cancer Alley sort of situation. One is that under the Clean Air Act, EPA does have regulations of hazardous air pollutants, um, which include a whole long list of carcinogens. Um, The the requirement that EPA regulate hazardous air pollutants goes back to the original Clean Air Act of 1970. Um, Though it is a classic tale of different the challenges of different approaches to environmental regulation, um, which frankly, in a way, bears on your ultimate underlying question of of a constitutional amendment outlawing pollution. Um, So maybe what I'll do is just, I'll circle back to that in one second and just say, the other legal response is toxic tort actions, right? If If you do something that gives me cancer, I can sue you. You have hurt me, right? Just... We don't need environmental law for that, just the basic common law of torts, of wrongs, injuries. So just like if you run me over in your car, I can sue you and recover, Uh, at least certainly if you did it on purpose and also if you were negligent. So if you do something that gives me cancer, I can sue you. But there are enormous challenges in bringing those lawsuits, Um, partly because it's expensive to bring a lawsuit but partly because the, the challenges of proving it is so hard. Right? And so, for example, you can look at a population and say there's a higher cancer rate here than we would expect. Right? <clears throat> we would expect there to be 1,000 cancers here, and there are 1,500 cancers here in this population. Um, and find an expert witness to say, oh, well, the reason there's elevated cancer here is emissions from these four plants, right? They're exposed to these carcinogens, and that explains it. But it, you can't prove that any individual cancer case is the result of that exposure, right? So the, the common law model is like the car crash, You run into me with your car. I know you did it. You caused my harm. And I can prove that it was you. But if I get cancer, and a whole bunch of cancers occur without us knowing the cause, and I'm exposed to a whole bunch of carcinogens in addition to the one you exposed me to, I can't say for sure you caused my cancer, right? Lots of people get cancer. And the the causation... And there are a bunch of other sort of, if you will, quasi-technical challenges as well that make, make the toxic tort lawsuit actually a very hard lawsuit to bring. There are a lot of plaintiff's lawyers out there who will bring them when they think they have a good case, but they often don't have a good case. And the lawsuit, there, there's an injury out there, you know it for sure, but it is a hard thing to recover for, to prove and recover for. Um, what I, the story I wanted to tell about hazardous air pollutants and um, you can interrupt me if this is too far off track okay go ahead okay so so when you think about regulating pollution first you have to decide okay there's a problem right there's too much pollution we have a situation that's not tolerable so we want somehow to limit the the pollution and um now that that's a that's an important threshold decision, right? How, how do you know there's too much, right? But anyways, we're just going to assume we've decided that. We, we want to limit pollution. So how much are we going to restrict the pollution, right? How strictly should we regulate? How ferociously should we regulate? How do you answer that question? It turns out there are only three ways to answer it, okay? There are three approaches. And in American environmental statutes, you see all three, though there is a dominant one of these three. So one, and in a certain way, the most intuitively sensible one, the one you'd expect, is to say, well, we should protect public health and have a clean environment. We should make it clean. We should make it safe, right? Now, we'll fight a little about how you define that, right? Is that zero? Is that a level at which there's no... Discernible physical reaction is that a level where the basic healthy person is unaffected, where asthmatics are unaffected, where you know, I mean, what it what it really means? Does clean mean no measurable pollution or just a tolerable level? You know, there's a definitional problem, but conceptually, we would just say, make it safe, make it clean, mm-hmm. right? Okay. The problem is it's not safe. And it's not and it's dirty, let's make it safe and clean. Second approach is to say, let's make everybody do what they can to clean up. Right? We have various emitters. We don't necessarily want to shut down whole industries. We don't want to throw lots of people out of work. We don't want to remake the economy. But these guys could be doing a lot better than they're doing. There are lots of control technologies out there. We're going to say, hey, you guys, use the best available technology to reduce your pollution. Right? Um, you're being way too dirty. Spend some money to clean up. Right? We're not going to ask you to do the impossible. We won't shut you down if, we, if you're still polluting some once you've done all you can. But do all you can. Right? And the third approach is essentially to balance, and this could be done in a highly technical, sophisticated, quantified way as a sort of cost-benefit analysis, or it could be done more seat-of-the-pants. But we'll say, look, we don't we don't want to overinvest in pollution control, but let's keep. the, The conceptual the concept would be. Keep investing in, t- in pollution control until it's no longer worth it. Right? A dollar, an additional dollar of pollution control doesn't get you a dollar of benefit, right? And you know what tends to happen is that there's low-hanging few- fruit, early investments in pollution control are cheap and get you a lot. And as you get cleaner and cleaner, it's harder and harder to you know it's more and more expensive to get additional reductions and so that last 10% may look crazily expensive and we'll say no we can live with 90% it's you know we're, we're not going to spend three times as much to get one tenth additional value right but some form of balancing right so those are the three approaches there are actually no there's no other way of answering this problem mm-hmm. okay and the dominant one is to just say, do the best you can. The best technology approach. okay. That's And one of the reasons, and, and, and in a way, when you think about it, it's not surprising. So one reason that it's dominant is you're not asking anyone to do the impossible. You're not shutting anybody down, right? Every, and the way it's usually defined, you might shut individual firms down, but you won't shut whole industries down, right? The hardest, and and also you need the least amount of information, right? It's an engineering question, right? You don't actually need to know, is something a carcinogen? What's a safe level of exposure to it, right? You're sort of by definition living with whatever the resulting environmental conditions are once everyone's doing all they can. Mm -hmm. You're kind of defining that as acceptable. So you don't have to, and, and, and the questions are engineering questions. How mu- what can you do and how much does it cost? The original Clean Air Act was actually not very interested in that approach. The original Clean Air Act was quite focused on protect public health. The first right? one. The first one, yeah, the first one. The original Clean Water Act two years later was very much focused on the best technology approach. I don't want to overstate the difference because each has elements of the other in it. Mm-hmm. But if you were to say, what's the fundamental of the approach of the Clean Air Act? It's to get the air at a level necessary to protect public health. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to say, what's the fundamental approach of the Clean Water Act? It's to get every discharger to use the best available technology to limit their discharges. Um, the hazardous air pollutant provision... Of the, of the Clean Air Act said, okay, EPA, go out and identify all the hazardous air pollutants and write emission limits for different kinds of facilities that will protect the public health. And it set out to do this, and it got nowhere. And years went by, and it finally got one out the door, and it got two. I think that after 20 years, it had six or seven of these. Of
0: individual c- pollutants.
1: Yeah. And there are hundreds.
0: At least, yeah.
1: Right. Um, it just couldn't get them out the door. And in 1990, in the 1990 amendments, which were the was the last big environmental law that Congress was able to produce, Congress said, all right, to hell with that. EPA, here's a list of hazardous air pollutants right? They actually put, you know, listed in the statute, forget how many, but hundreds, mm-hmm. Right, pollution control limits that reflect the maximum degree of control possible, right? The best available technology approach. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Backup provision buried in the statute that says we'll try this, and after if after eight years we've got a problem, then you're going to have to crank it down because of health issues, though that's been largely ignored. And the um, uh, and and this is and, and Congress has I mean the EPA has been able to do that right. It's been able to get. So called MACT, Ma- Maximum Available Control Technology is the phrase that's used, though it doesn't actually appear in the statute. Mm-hmm. It's gotten the MACT standards out the door. And exactly the same thing happened with toxic water pollutants. The, despite what I said about the basic approach of the Clean Water Act being the best technology approach, in the original Clean Water Act, it had a provision about toxic water pollutants. And there it said EPA, write some standards that will protect public health. Mm-hmm. And it didn't get even six of them out. It got, you want to guess how many it got out? One. Almost. (laughs) Close to one. It's not a negative number. (laughs) Zero. 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 It just got none out. And it was sued by NRDC. And it led to a settlement where they said, all right, we'll we'll just do the best technology approach. And NRDC viewed this as a victory, right? Even though you'd sort of think the environmental group, Preferred environmental group approach kind of intuitively would be protect public health, Mm -hmm. get a clean environment. But NRDC understood that it just was beyond the capability of EPA to get these things out the door. And so NRDC saw it as a victory to switch the approach to the best technology approach. Totally illegal under the statute at the time. Uh, though signed off on by a judge. Um, This was called the Flannery Decree because the judge was Judge Flannery. And then Congress wrote it into the statute. So Congress amended both the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act ultimately to abandon the health-based approach in favor of the technology-based approach um, so that, you know, we could just get some regulations out the door.
0: From First, thank you for sharing that history. And I'm glad I'm glad you asked, but I'm glad that I said, yeah, go because that's to me fascinating. The biggest thing is what I was saying before about Eli Whitney and the cotton gin is that from a systemic perspective, if we value industrial growth and, and pollution is part of that, then adding new technology to make the system more efficient will make the system more efficient, will pollute more efficiently. And a lot of people don't realize that I, uh, sorry to repeat for you, but I think it was before we recorded yes. that I have this, the example of if how values are uh, – technology augments the values of the people using it. And when the cotton gin – when Eli Whitney's cotton gin came out, it could get more output for the same labor. Well, the people who owned the cotton gin didn't value less labor. They valued more profit. So they increased labor because it was more profitable. and. Historians generally agree. I think that the cotton gin inadvertently, however inadvertently, was one of the major contributors to the Civil War by empowering the cotton producers. If they valued less labor, it, the same technology could have contributed to the decrease of slavery.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Likewise, if we take a technology, take electric cars, and if we, um, if we look at one electric car compared to one in... in internal combustion engine car. Well, this is debatable, but let's just say it pollutes less overall. If we value less pollution, that's a win. But if we value more cars, then the savings that we get, we're going to pump back into making more and more cars. And it's counterintuitive for many people to say, even though I'm producing less pollution at this particular place, I'm actually producing more overall. And not just, I don't just mean like the coal plant, if, if, if we're powering it from coal powered, but just overall, the whole system's going to grow.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's true in a narrow way and in a broad, in a broad way. And uh, the narrow way is absolutely true. And you see this with, for example, uh, mileage standards, right? Forget even the electric car. Um, you, you make a car more fuel efficient, that feels like an environmental win you're making it less expensive to drive, therefore we'll be driven more, right? That's just Econ 101. LED lights, right? Yes, LED lights are great. Look at how much more outdoor lighting there is now than there was 10 years ago because it's so cheap. So everyone is using more lights. Um, so there's always a bit of a bounce back. Um, when, you, when you make something more efficient, more of it will be done, right? That's the narrow point. Now, it doesn't necessarily overwhelm the gains. it may just cut into the gains. I think with LED lights and with mileage it cuts into the gains uh, you get so far more... only, yeah yeah, but I think you're making a a a broader point, which is in enables and recommits us to the problematic underlying technology by making it more palatable and less expensive, and it means we'll never give up the underlying. Problematic technology. Now, if you really solve the air pollution problem from cars, that's a solution. Now, it turns out there are a million other problems with cars besides air pollution, but I wouldn't go so far as to say, you know, um, reducing pollution always leads to more pollution. Um, Overall, I think reducing pollution to the extent it makes an activity less expensive, will mean that there's more of that activity and therefore more pollution. But as I say, I don't think that that doesn't necessarily, depends on how big the reduction was and how much cheaper it is, whether it will, whether it will overwhelm the gains. But, you know, with something like cars, it would be great to solve the air pollution problem from cars, but you then haven't solved the Paving of the world problem, the parking lot problem, the car accident problem, the pedestrians being run over problem, the noise problem. I mean, you know, you're you're left with a technology that's still highly problematic.
0: Yeah. So yeah, a lot of people don't get this, and it's to me, it's a systemic issue. Uh, Cars don't. I, I feel like a lot of people today, if they were back in the '60s, they would they'd be like yeah Robert Moses is doing great things. Mm-hmm. I think they would still prefer to live in Greenwich Village than next to the cross Bronx expressway. but the sound of we're building roads we're you know we're creating commerce it's It sounds so appealing. I think it's the it's not just the technology it's the value. I think the more important piece is the values. the technology mm-hmm. is going to augment those
2: mm-hmm.
0: and so I don't think of of creating law in order to change values because I think if then you get the prohibition, and people push back. The challenge is to change the value so that the if there if there is legislation, it reflects the will of the people that um, you know hopefully comes through some democratic process so I do think of a, one of the things we talked about last time was the value of a constitutional amendment as a legal thing versus its symbolic value, and I think you were saying that Symbolic value isn't such a big thing legally, but from a leadership perspective, to have a target, to have something tangible that could happen is meaningful.
1: Yeah, though I rebel against the idea of describing a law that way, right? That a law is a target, Mm -hmm. because then you are acknowledging and even endorsing Falling short and failure to comply. And, you know, for the. So there are one of the things, again, typically you see in laws, a, a standard federal statute, if you look at any of the environmental laws, they begin with a statement of principles or purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and those always sound great. <laughs> um, When we met before, I showed you in the Clean Water Act, one of the goals of the Clean Water Act was to eliminate discharges to waters of the United States by 1985, right? Just eliminate it. No more water pollution. Um, The operative provisions of the act don't actually require that. It's what Congress wanted to happen. But it's put in a, a statement of goals or a statement of policy and not legally enforceable. Um, and so it has some symbolic value, um, and it's a noble aspiration. I think that it was just highly unlikely to happen, even if it had been in the in the s- substance. And and putting something that's not going to happen and and kind of endorsing it not happening in the first place Actually undermines the value of law because then people get used to the idea that uh, law is not law.
0: So I don't mean it being symbolic as an amendment. I mean one of the things, I, a perspective that I have is that if I were in 1850, I would see a divided nation, hugely, you know, many people saying slavery is good. And I got some great quotes. and I mean gut wrenching quotes, quotes of people saying slavery is great, mm-hmm. and
1: no one for everybody. Including yes. the enslaved people.
0: Yes. Uh, and and people figure this out. Uh, this is a Lincoln quote that I've come across. I think I have it handy. Um, Nothing is more damaging to you than to do something that you believe is wrong. And I think that when you do something that you know is wrong, forget about other people judging or whatever. When you do something and you know it's wrong, that internal conflict forces you to suppress, deny, lie, tell stories, whatever it takes just to not face that conflict. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens on an individual level and a, and a cultural level as well. And to the extent where people by the hundreds of thousands will kill each other. And I mean, I don't want to oversimplify, but now no one would, I, I don't think there are many people who would suggest repealing the 13th Amendment. And I I view that one day we, may, we will have a, a time when, we'll look back and say there's a constitutional amendment banning pollution, that we'll look back and say, of course that. It'll be hard for people to imagine, why would we not? In the way that someone would say, why would we not? How can we not ban slavery? Of course we want to end slavery. Of course it was much more complicated then. Yeah. But, so, um, I imagine between now and when we have a nation, a, a world united, we don't want to pollute, that will help us get there. That, in symbolism like that, where eventually when it happens, it would be, I, well, I don't know how hard it's been to enforce the 13th Amendment. It, it seems like, I don't, we, like it's not like we created whole new government bureaucracies of anti-slavery departments. Right. So it doesn't seem like it's cost a lot in terms of like extra taxes.
1: No, no, I think, I th- I think that's right. There are, you know, always arguments about, you know, you said, oh, well, people would object to your no pollution amendment because now you have to define pollution and, you know, what exactly is the scope and it will raise interpretive issues. That also has happened under the 13th Amendment, you know, that the you do find people sort of making arguments about um, is... You know, could you, could you come up with a 13th Amendment objection to something that isn't, you know, enslaving another human being in the pure form? And those arguments tend to go nowhere, but it's the nature of constitutional provisions that people try and push the envelope and get, go beyond the paradigmatic case and so on. It lurks, for example, in the abortion disputes, right? Is it a form of involuntary servitude? To tell a woman that she has to carry a fetus hmm. to term, right? I mean, it's not a crazy notion. You're saying, I, I am forcing you to use your body in this particular way, right? You know, yeah. um, is that a Thirteenth Amendment violation? There are people who, who seriously argue that it is. There's no court that has said it is, and I. There's no possibility that the current Supreme Court would say that it is. Um, but it's just sort of an example of how whatever constitutional amendment you have, there will be an ongoing dialogue about what exactly are its contours. The, um, that said, there is a kind of purity to the 13th Amendment that just says, you know, one human being owning another is impermissible in a way that's saying pollution is impermissible you know what it, do you really want to prohibit all pollution of any sort and how do you define it that does feel like a challenge because yeah. most people will say well a certain amount of reliance on the assimilative capacity of the environment as we were discussing before is fine, is appropriate, is actually the system. The problem is not pollution. The problem is too much pollution, And there is, this is, look, one of the fundamental issues in environmental policy and one of the ways in which, if you will, ecologists diverge from economists, Mm -hmm. but economists are more influential in policy debates than ecologists, is an ecologist would essentially say less pollution is always better than more pollution and no pollution would be the best right because pollution is always some kind of interference with the natural scheme and an economist would say we need to have the right amount of pollution right we should not have too much and, and and any completely mainstream i mean it's it's a standard example in regulatory theory pollution is an example of market failure and if you have an unregulated market you'll have too much pollution and the most conservative economist out there will say, we need government regulation of pollution mm-hmm. uh, because it's a classic externality. It's the it's the primary example you see in Econ 101 textbooks of, of an externality, which is a market failure, which justifies regulation. But you could also have too little pollution from the point of view of the economist, right? And too much pollution is bad for society, and too little pollution is just as bad for society. And... So a no pollution amendment would be crazy talk just as a policy matter to, you know, most mainstream policymakers who are influenced by standard economic thinking.
0: You have a lot of great quotes from Reagan and, and Goldwater and Friedman saying uh, the first role of government is to protect life, liberty, liber- and property and create a level playing field. Mm-hmm. And so they were pro this, this stuff back then. Well, and to some degree, and to some degrees not. I mean, to me, if you if life, liberty, and property is your main role for government, it's hard to say that pollution doesn't destroy life, liberty, and property. And yeah, so zero—that's a big challenge. Is I think most people's view of zero means lots of middle steps, but eventually either return to the Stone Age or some sort of Mad Max apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. And That's a failure of imagination as well. Mm -hmm. But also the environment does... I mean, what if we... I tend to think of carbon that's emitted from stuff that we brought from outside the biosphere that hasn't been in the biosphere for 10, 100 million years. Then that's increasing the amount of carbon in the biosphere. And if we can't get it back out of the biosphere, whether we put in trees or... It's still going to make it into the atmosphere somehow, mm-hmm. at some point. Maybe, maybe it'll take 100 years to get there, but it'll still get there. Then, but what if we do get direct air capture and it works? So right now I've seen, and I've had people on the podcast who are experts on this, and they, they say this is not a solution to climate change. That's only one problem with burning fossil fuels. Uh, and if, But if we said you can't bring stuff from outside the biosphere into the biosphere that hurts humans, but if you could get it back out again, then you could, uh, that would suddenly put a lot more focus onto carbon capture and sequestration or direct air capture. Because suddenly, like, everyone who wants to burn something that's, it, let's say it only produces carbon, uh, carbon dioxide and methane, mm-hmm. then they really want that to happen.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That would really spur. If it's, if it's not possible, better find that out fast. If it's possible, make it happen fast. It would motivate, uh, innovation in these areas.
1: Yeah. Um, I guess I'd separate two questions, right? So one is, should we put some kind of cap on pollution? Okay. And you're quite focused on carbon and the burning of fossil fuels. Oh,
0: I have here, but not me overall. Yeah, there's a lot.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the... And then we could fight about what that number is, right? Is it zero or is it 10 or is it 100 or it's a 1,000 of whatever units we have, right? Your conception is zero, um, uh, but, you know, one could have a debate about whether actually the number ought to be 10, right, I, I'm, of whatever the units are, right? So because everyone agrees that there ought to be some limit, So one policy argument is how stringent the limit should be. And the second is, what is the benefit that comes from expressing it as a constitutional amendment rather than in a statute, Mm -hmm. right? And those are separate questions. Um, One is essentially a a policy question, and one is a, I don't know if it's exactly right to call it, a strategic question, but a question of implementation. Um, And... I remain somewhat agnostic about the value of putting it in the Constitution. Um, part for, for a couple reasons. One, you know, one of the one of the, the things about um, almost every provision of the United States Constitution, with the partial exception of the Thirteenth Amendment, is that they are all directed to the government, right? Every right in the Constitution is a right as against the government. So Congress shall make no law respecting the freedom of speech, right? Or no warrants without probable cause. Or uh, you can't take property without due process. Those are all things that the, the ways the government is not allowed to hurt you.
2: Right?
1: None of them are directed at private conduct. None of them say that individual citizens are prohibited from doing something. Um, Rules about what individual citizens do are created by legislatures within those constitutional constraints and as empowered by the power-granting parts of the Constitution. And so a... There are many... Now, that's true of the American Constitution. Many constitutions also have what are usually called affirmative rights. In other words, everything I just described is a negative right. Your right is to be free from the government in certain ways. But you don't have any claims on the government. The government doesn't have to do anything for you. It only can't do some things to you. Right? Um, so... And in common discourse, we talk about these rights all the time. People talk about a right to education or a right to health care or a right to a living wage or a right to housing, right? And, and many countries have such rights in their constitutions. We don't, right? And every effort to either amend the U.S. Constitution to include such rights or to get the Supreme Court to discover such rights buried in the Constitution has failed. Um, There was a period in the 1970s when it looked like actually, you know, in the Warren Court years that the Supreme Court might discover some affirmative rights, but when push came to shove, it didn't. And so there are cases saying, for example, no, there's no right to education, right? And so a right to a clean environment, and I realized you're phrasing it slightly differently. There's oh, no and, pollution.
0: And I'm very curious about the difference because yeah. that's when most people talk about Green Amendments, they talk about it's the right about to It's all about the right
1: to clean environment, yeah. right? And, and where they exist, that's how it's stated, right? And so so it's a little, it's a little, um, it doesn't, doesn't exactly fit. And, and one result of it exactly fit is where they've been interpreted, they've been interpreted as being about the government. That is, say, if, you, if I just said, okay, here's a provision in the Constitution that says you have a right to a clean environment and you have a neighbor who's polluting a lot, right? your instinct might be, oh, wait a second, he's violating my right to a clean environment. My environment is not clean because of his pollution. And so presumably I can sue him or something, right? But um, a secondary... Interpretation would be the government has an obligation to shut him down, right? That is exactly what, you know, again, the current United States Constitution does not provide. Um, There is no, the government has no obligation under the existing Constitution to protect you from harm from other people, right? including private violence. We do have laws against murder and so on and so forth. But there's no constitutional obligation to have them. And there have been situations, cases where, you know, the the police or child services, child welfare agencies have just fallen down terribly on the job with tragic human outcomes and the effort made to say, you know, that that's a due process violation, a taking of life, liberty, or property without due process, some kind of interference with a fundamental right, and those cases have consistently lost. And that's what's being litigated in this Juliana case, which is now over, but the, the Our Children's Future case out in, out in Oregon um, was is that kind of theory. The right to a clean environment presumably would create that when it comes to uh, comes to environmental protection, right? Um, that the government has an obligation to protect you from private harms. Um, now, the fact that it doesn't generally exist doesn't mean it shouldn't, right? That, that, lots of things that are great didn't used to exist. And, um, but it is a sort of fundamental reconceptualization of what The American Constitution does. And in states where there are these provisions, it they've not actually been read in either of the two ways I mentioned. And I say haven't been read to give you a right against your neighbor, and they haven't been read to give the government an obligation to shut down your neighbor. What they've been read to do is to give the government the power to shut down your neighbor. So one classic place where this has all played out is Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Pencil, the Pennsylvania state constitution has a right to a clean environment that dates back to 1971, right? Earth Day and, the, you know, that whole period. And New York state only recently adopted such an amendment this, within the past year. Look at fracking. Okay? What's the big fracking state? Pennsylvania, right? That's where all the fracking is taking place.
0: On the East Coast, I think North Dakota first. Uh,
1: On the first. East Coast, yes. But as between New York and Pennsylvania, okay, lots yeah. of fracking in Pennsylvania, no fracking in New York, but it's Pennsylvania that has the right to a clean environment, right? And there was litigation in Pennsylvania state courts challenging the uh, government's allowance of, of fracking and, and or, or challenging the, there's litigation in Pennsylvania state courts about fracking. And to actually people's surprise, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said, yeah, actually the amendment is relevant here. But what it said was, was individual towns are allowed to prohibit fracking in their town. The state had allowed fracking. And the question was, could the state's decision trump individual towns' contrary preferences? And Because the general rule is state trumps town in anything. You know, the state state government always wins over municipal governments in in anything. Um, Municipal governments are creatures of the state and can't buck state policy. So this was a significant ruling. But boy, it's awfully small beer, right? To say all it means is that if the local government wants to prohibit this, it can, even though the state government has allowed it. So this is an amendment that looks awfully powerful on paper and amounts to very little. And in New York State, the legislature never banned it outright, but it kept saying, not for now, we have to study it. You know, and fracking hasn't taken place. And it's just one data point, but it's a significant data point about the possibility of irrelevance of of these amendments.
0: So I'm putting together... Thank you for sharing all this. I feel like, in in, in one sense, I've, I've, I'm learning a lot. In another sense, this is, feels like barely scratching the surface. And in yet another sense, it feels like there's un, huge uncharted territory ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I mean, people have been leaving for a while of of I think I think I heard you say at the beginning, environmental law is inadequate.
1: Mm-hmm. It clearly is.
0: And so it's got to happen somehow. And so part of me says, be on the forefront.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And part of me says, uh, it could be. Like I'm working on my book and I want to show that I, I certainly envision a brighter future and I can imagine a future with very strong public support for like, here's, I, I think of everywhere in the world, everyone drives on the correct side of the double yellow line and nobody says bureaucrats are keeping me from my freedom. <laughs> like, you know, and at and it, 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 three in the morning in a place where you can see all around you, people still stop at red lights even though it could just go through, even though there'd be no no harm otherwise. And I vision, I, I envision a, a world in which people feel that way about pollution, that it's like, of course, I'm not going to cross the double yellow line. Of course, I'm not going to dump stuff down the drain. And that this feels like a part of it. And so I'm trying to figure out, I, but I don't want to sound naive or ignorant of, like, is it possible and... I feel like this is big. I hope you're available for like, this is going to get me thinking. and I'm, I'm almost <laughs> certainly going to come back to you and say, what about this? And I haven't yeah. talked to Maya yet. Uh, if yeah. I can call her by her first name. Yeah. Um, because I feel like she's been working on this a lot. Sure. Um, yeah.
1: I, it, you know, the, the, the drive on the right side of the road analogy, we're stopping at red lights. Um, you know, part of, if you just sort of back up a little about, about sort of, series of regulation you know red lights are a classic example of how giving up your liberty because you're stopping at the red lights mm-hmm. right everyone understands how in fact that's ultimately liberty enhancing right because if none of us stopped at the red lights we would all just bump into each other and traffic would grind to a halt and, and so there are situations when we collectively agree each of us to forego some liberty. The result is, in fact, in our individual lives, we have more liberty than if we had not given that up. And, and, you know, political theorists talk about this idea, and the the traffic lights is a very lovely example of of that sort of notion. But it's a situation where where we've overcome the collective action problem, where we've overcome the general tendency to think I will do better if I just decide for myself. And one of the things that's going on here, and is very kind of relevant in the hugely relevant to the question of, of environmental law, and frankly, to the question of individual action that's so much your, your focus, personal uh, choice and action, is the so called free rider problem. <laughs> So the free rider problem is you know there are there are situations where the problem really requires everyone doing something and no one wants to go first because a you don't want other people to get the benefit of your action to free ride on you and b you're kind of hoping maybe you can free ride on someone else, okay? So the example I always use when I teach this in class is, um, it's becoming technologically obsolete because of the scourge of Keurig coffee makers, but the old communal drip coffee maker at a workplace, right? Every every workplace with a little kitchen and a drip coffee maker, the rule is whoever comes in first in the morning makes a pot of coffee, Right? And then everyone can help themselves. But if you take the last cup, you make a fresh pot, right? That's, that's the sensible rule. And what happens is, of course, when there's about a cup left, someone will come into the kitchen and think, oh, I really need a cup of coffee. Ugh, there's only one cup, you know, and just sort of walk away because they don't want to make the pot. Why don't they want to make the pot? Well, A, all the benefit of their effort is going to other people right? Or most of it. They get one cup, but there are 16 cups in the pot and 15 of them are going to other people. Those are free riders. I resent them getting the benefit of my effort. And on the other hand, if I wait 10 minutes, maybe someone else will come and make a pot, right? I can free ride on that. And when it comes to the kind of self-restraint that you exercise so impressively, Maybe restraint is a word you might object to, but anyways, the the, the, the kind of um, cognizant life you are living, most people see that as giving something up, doing something that's for the public good, which means most people, other, the, most of the benefit of what they're doing is flowing to other people, and kind of hoping that someone else will go first so they don't have to. And The, you know, traffic safety rules, rules of the road are a place where there's a kind of clear collective benefit and everyone realizes we all got to participate and everyone realizes it's a sensible thing to do and kind of living an environmentally responsible life. There are a lot of people who will say, look, if the government requires this, I'll do it. And I think the government Mm -hmm. should require it, right? Um, I always ask my environmental law students, what do you think about someone who says, I think Hummers should be illegal? They're outrageous, right? So destructive, so resource intensive. But they're great, and I own one. And unless and until they're outlawed, I'm going to drive it all the time, right? What do you think about that person?
0: It feels like someone who says, I want... Uh, taxes should be, people should be taxed, but I'm going to do everything I can legally to lower my taxes as much as possible.
1: That's Feels another, very similar. yeah, yeah, I think it is very similar, right? And um, a lot of people behave that way a lot of the time, right? Mm-hmm. And, and part of it is, I'm willing to give up my Hummer if you have to give up your Hummer also, but why should I give up my Hummer when A, one person giving up his Hummer is going to do nothing by itself, response you hear all the time mm-hmm. and, um, and B, and be no one else has to give up their hummer right so and, and it comes back to what we were talking about before i can't remember if the if you were recording at the time or not but you know the moral dimension of this problem which brings us back to slavery yeah. right if the more you view it as having a moral dimension the more you have no sympathy for this jerk in his hummer mm-hmm. right who says they should be outlawed because he's doing something he thinks is a he, you know um, he supposedly thinks is appalling, right? There's a kind of hypocr- hypocrisy there. But if you think it's, you know, that it's not necessarily immoral, but just, you know, one, one wants to wait for you, you. At the end of the day, you need the systemic change that you also talk about. Um, we'll get that through some kind of collective political process, most obviously legislation. And unless and until there's that kind of collective, effective collective decision, how I live my life is, you know, doesn't make that much of a difference, and and I will continue to drive my hummer. Right.
0: So, which brings us to leadership, and and my, now i at this point, my mind is racing with all <laughs> of what I've learned, and part of it is that you know, there's something like it's kind of interesting. My having stumbled on the traffic analogy, and you're like, well, that's a classic case. I'm like, I love when I that humbling thing mm. of like that's been there before. And so can I come back again and, and <laughs> continue this conversation sure, sure. another time? No, It's been a pleasure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's really top level before wrapping up?
1: No, as you said, we could go on forever. Right. And so, so no, I don't think that there's some critical linchpin piece. We haven't, we haven't talked about and it. It's essential that we do.
0: Well, Michael Hertz, thank you very much.
1: No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodekcom slash donate. Again, that's
2: joshuaspodekcom slash donate.